Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Solar eclipsed. Alberta announces significant new restrictions on the renewable energy sector. One of its leaders says the industry is left feeling politicized and kind of powerless. Hammering his point at home, a Russian peace activist gets prison time for criticizing the country's war against Ukraine. His colleague tells us he knew the risks of staying in Russia, but he refused to leave on principle. The sky is falling. One suspect is still on the run after allegedly helping kill thousands of birds, including eagles in Montana. But another man is pleading guilty, and our guest hopes that will send a message. Brazilian wax. He's been buffeted by lots of allegations of wrongdoing, but now Jair Bolsonaro is slapped with a truly unforgivable accusation that he harassed a humpback whale while he was on a jet ski. A loaf-hate relationship, a volunteer group that sends out free sourdough starter, is overwhelmed with requests after their offer gets mentioned on social media. Our guest may be wishing the scheme had been kept. Need to know. It's need with a K. And going full tilt, the owners of a famously crooked alehouse in the UK are told to rebuild it with all its crookedness intact. And one local warns that it better be exactly as lopsided as it was before. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that urges the pub owners, don't get mad, get uneven. The pause on approvals for renewable energy projects in Alberta is over, but that hardly means the province is giving the industry a green light. Today, the Alberta government announced a ban on renewable power projects on prime agricultural lands. It's also creating buffer zones around scenic areas to stop wind turbines from blocking the view. The Alberta minister in charge of the changes, Nathan Newdorf, called it a, quote, agriculture-first approach. And here's what he said when he was asked if the changes were fair to the renewable energy sector. Uh, I absolutely believe that they did receive fairness. Uh, I think it was also also to be noted that agriculture was hoping for uh, representation and their voices to be heard, as well as municipalities and and even other stakeholders like the tourism industry was uh, imminently concerned about potential impacts to their uh, tourist landscape. So we have sought to find the balance of all of those. And I think uh, the policy direction that we've put forward does find that balance. Alberta's Minister of Affordability and Utilities, Nathan Newdorf. Dan Balaban is the CEO of Greengate Power, the company behind a large solar farm in southern Alberta. We reached him in Calgary. Dan, is this fair and balanced from where you stand? No, uh, I think there's uh, some room for improvement, certainly. What concerned you as you looked at the list? Well, I think... um, 
you know, this this is all very new and uh, still needs to be fully digested. You know, but ultimately, I think these new rules are going to uh, slow down the growth of new renewable energy projects in this province. And uh, ultimately, we're not going to, uh, you know, realize our full renewable energy potential as we have been over the last uh, number of years where, you know, our province has been leading the, the country in one of the top places in North America for renewables investment. Specifically, you know, I think it uh, relates to, you know, some of the uh, exclusions uh, that are included in the new rules. So, the restrictions uh, on agricultural ex- land? Exactly. Restrictions on agricultural land, uh, restrictions for viewscape uh, concerns. Uh, there's still some uncertainty around exactly uh, what that means. But ultimately, it seems like a, a good portion of Alberta will no longer be eligible for uh, renewable energy, well, new renewable energy development. And let's talk specifically about those restrictions on agricultural land. Specifically, the province says it's going to bar any renewable projects on land that, that it deems to have excellent or good irrigation capability. So for your company, what direct impact does that have? Well, fortunately, my company is uh, not directly uh, impacted by the moratorium. Uh, the projects that we uh, have interest in are more, you know, generally more advanced, uh, so they weren't impacted uh, by these uh, new rules. Uh, but certainly in terms of new projects that we're looking to uh, take on, you know, we haven't been pursuing any new renewable energy developments uh, in Alberta, despite being you know, one of the most active developers in the province over the last 17 years. Uh, We've been waiting to see uh, how things unfold, you know, now that the government has at least, you know, followed through and and released rules on the time frame that they said they would, uh, you know, we're going to have to uh, digest those Mm -hmm. and see what that means for the future. Where are you taking your business? Well, I mean, there's uh, there's a ton of renewable energy opportunity, you know, uh, across other parts of Canada, uh, south of the border, uh, you know, all over the world. It's one of the fastest growing industries in the world. And, uh, you know, there's other places that uh, aren't taking the sort of uh, negative view of it that Alberta seems to be taking at the moment. The province says it needs to put these in place, as we heard, to, to protect agriculture, the landscape, tourism, the reliability of the grid also ha- has come up, certainly from the, the premier uh, as we've we've approached this state and these new new rules, every industry needs to be regulated, even if they're, you know, more in line with what some people want to see and what the future looks like, and they're more environment, potentially more environmentally friendly. So, why do you think there's so much pushback and concern about these rules? Every industry needs to be regulated, no? Yeah, absolutely. Every industry uh, needs to be regulated, and I have, I actually have uh, no problem with the idea that uh, this was reviewed in the first place. Uh, I think uh, every uh, fast-growing industry uh, needs to be uh, under review to ensure that there's, you know, continuous improvement. Uh, what I did have an issue with, and would still have an issue with, is I think a moratorium was unnecessary uh, and uh, an extreme uh, way of uh, implementing that review. That review could have uh, been done uh, concurrent uh, with uh, industry still going ahead. And then I think what it appears to uh, be the details uh, of the rules themselves, it seems to me, at least on the surface, that uh, they're more uh, restrictive than they ought to be. And how does that compare, again, from, from where you sit when we look at other industries in Alberta? Are they, do you feel, getting the same scrutiny? Absolutely not. No, the, the renewable energy in, uh, industry 
uh, definitely seems to be uh, singled out right now for uh, different treatment, uh, you know, than the oil and gas industry. But, you know, I really see all of this as a symptom of a much bigger issue. It's the politics of division. You know, every major issue globally right now seems to be defined by being on one side or the other. But the the truth is usually in the middle. Energy is uh, one of those issues. In Alberta, it's, you know, one of the top issues. And um, you've got the federal government that is pushing for a very aggressive uh, net zero by 2035 target. Uh, You have the province, which is pushing back on that very hard. And unfortunately, I think the renewable energy industry is caught in the middle. What you heard from the minister there and, and throughout their statements today, did you did you get any hints or suggestions, rather, that they're trying to come to the middle? No, I don't. This started, um, this process started in a very negative way with a moratorium. And you know, at least to me, it seems that it is more restrictive than it ought to be. So, uh, you know, I would say we uh, haven't landed in the middle. What will this mean for consumers? That's a very interesting question. So what we're seeing is, uh, you know, a lot of anxiety around the net zero uh, transition. You know, there's there's obviously uh, people that are very concerned about uh, climate and uh, the need to uh, address emissions. But on the, you know, the other side, you have people that are very concerned about, you know, reliability and affordability of their energy going forward. But, you know, the reality is, our energy needs are growing, our population's growing, our economy is growing. There's uh, you know, new uses for uh, energy and electricity in particular. And you know, any moves that are slowing down the development of new power generation, I don't think are working in consumers' interests. Dan, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Dan Balaban is the CEO of Greengate Power. He's in Calgary. An eagle poaching scheme in Montana appears set to produce at least one guilty plea. When U.S. federal prosecutors charged the two suspects in December, they described a, quote, killing spree on and around the Flathead Indian Reservation that had left thousands of birds dead, including bald eagles and golden eagles. Now, court documents suggest that one of the two men has agreed to a plea deal that will see most of the charges against him dropped. Rich Jansen is the director of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Natural Resources Department, whose investigators first looked into this. We reached him in Ronan, Montana, on the Flathead Indian Reservation. Director Jansen, how does this plea deal sit with you? Well, you know, it's uh, kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, The individual did plead guilty to four of the 15 counts. So, you know, justice will be served. Um, We don't know a lot about it because we weren't the the parties that were charging, um, Mm -hmm. and that was the federal government. But at least we'll know this will serve, um, you know, as a warning to others that look to um, take our uh, bald and golden eagles illegally and sell them as a warning. So, you know, it's it's a good thing. Is it a relief, given that you and your your team have have been part of this investigation for so long? Yeah, it is a relief that it it finally um, ended the rain um, going back to 2015 when we started the investigation. 
you know, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's nine years um, of a lot of hard work um, by a lot of people, including uh, my tribal fish and game wardens that started the investigation and then handed it off to the federal um, team to finally see this come to fruition. So yes, it is a relief. Nine years ago, what were they seeing that set off the alarm bells and, and triggered all of this? Well, what we were seeing was just uh, bird carcasses um, on our reservation um, that we were finding, and it kind of um, sent alarm bells to our, our game wardens, you know, and the Flathead Reservation is, is a big area, 1.2 million acres, and when we start finding these uh, golden eagle and bald eagle carcasses, you know, we started to uh, investigate, and, you know, this is what we found, and mm-hmm. it's a good thing that uh, we found these when we did because we were finally able to have justice served Thousands of birds killed, many of them eagles, as, as you've mentioned, over these nine years. In the court documents, federal prosecutors uh, say Travis Branson allegedly bragged to would-be buyers that he was, quote, on a killing spree to collect eagle feathers. What are you able to tell us, Director Jensen, about how this operation was working? Well, I can't tell you a lot. Mm-hmm. I just know that our... Uh, Game wardens were instrumental, you know, in collecting the evidence on this case and then sharing the evidence mm-hmm. with the, the federal prosecuting team, you know, to bring these two individuals, or at least this one, to justice. You know, we did a lot of the legwork, yeah. and under federal law, it's, it's against the law to, uh, you know, kill these majestic birds there and is, sell them mm-hmm. illegally. There is another accused in the case. Uh, he ha- has not been caught. Are you concerned that despite this deal and this warning, as you've described it, that this will just resurface and continue with a different team? Uh, not at all. Not at all, because we're watching, you know, and, and this individual was charged and pled guilty. So, you know, it, it's going to be a stern warning to others that you just can't go around as shooting this protected bird species. You know, and and our game wardens are top-notch. We're out there. We're watching, you know, and word gets around pretty quickly, you know, and and the the community's upset, the public's upset, our our tribal membership is upset that you just don't do things like this. What have people been saying? Well, this is a majestic bird. It means a lot to our tribal people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure it means a lot to the American public as well. Um, As tribal people, we use these... uh, bird species as they molt their feathers. We can use them in traditional dresses, um, headdresses, uh, fans that we use in dances or powwows. Um, so these are things that we do not take lightly. You know, so when we take a, a life of a majestic bird purposely, um, it's just something that we do not do. And so to catch individuals doing that and having them come to justice, um, that's a good thing. And to see those carcasses. Yeah, yeah. It's just not good when you purposely kill uh, a bird species that means so much to our people. Who is the market for these? Who, you know, we know, as you said, these are, they're protected, they're revered. But, but who, um, where are they being sold to? That's a good question. You know, that, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't know who the market is. It could be um, potential buyers that want to sell to Indian people. You know, I don't know. That's a that's a really good question. Um, right now, we got a, a federal depository that um, takes 
um, bald eagles that are that are already dead, and there's a big backlog for Indian people that requesting. That's the National these, Eagle Repository. Uh, parts. Yeah, and that's the legal way we get them. And so I'm sure there's people out there that are trying to capitalize on the black market trade, mm-hmm. and so they're always looking for willing uh, sellers. You know, so I just don't know who that could be. What are your wildlife officers seeing now? Well, um, both these individuals were charged from 2021. So here we are, um, the end of February in in, uh, 2024. So it's been about three years. We are seeing eagles coming back here. We're starting to see the, the eagles here along Flathead Lake, which is the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. So we're seeing the bald and golden eagles here. And that's really good. Director Jansen, thank you. You are so welcome. Rich Jansen is the director of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Natural Resources Department. We reached him in Ronan, Montana, on the Flathead Indian Reservation. In January, Michigan TikTok user Susan Robeson posted this video. Okay, sourdough friends, did you know that you can send a self-addressed envelope to this address and they will send you back a 100 plus year old dehydrated sourdough starter for free? All you have to do is send them a self-addressed envelope. I am going to try this. The starter will get here in like six to eight weeks and I'll update with Uh, any updates that happen. That 59-second video went viral, which Ms. Robeson told the Washington Post she did not expect. Mary Buckingham of Greeley, Colorado, didn't expect it either, but it has changed her life. Ms. Buckingham is the keeper of the mailbox for the volunteer group that sends out that Carl Griffiths 1847 Oregon Trail sourdough starter. We reached her in Greeley. Mary, does does hearing that now, uh, does it make your blood boil? How does it sit with you? Well, I can't say I'm angry, but I am tired. <laughs> Just exhausted. How many requests have come in because of that video? Well, we're now uh, 8,000 Eight? this week. 8,000? Yes, this year. Uh, that's like more than two years worth. How are you keeping up? Uh, well, my sister has been kind enough to help me, so that's been a huge help, or I'd be weeks behind. And we're just nonstop work. It's all day, every day, all the weekends. They just don't ever stop. This is your full-time job right now? It is. I thought I was retired. So how did you find out what was going on? Well, on January 20th, the post office gave me a call that morning and told me that there were three two-foot-long postal letter boxes full. And she had wondered what on earth and uh, googled and found that TikTok video. And it's been like this ever since. Of course, there's now standard media. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to get worse. Obviously, you do this because you want to spread this historic sourdough starter. You want the tradition to continue. But are you sorry you even put it out there? Well, (laughs) I'm really sorry. I just kind of wish it would die down. We started this because Back in the 90s, when the internet was new and not full of trolls, there was this little thing called Usenet, where you could do forums. And people who were interested in sourdough would use that rec food sourdough forum. And Carl Griffiths was on there, and he would offer his historic 
Oregon Trail sourdough for free. Same thing we're doing. And then he died in 2000. And uh, one of our numbers thought, well, gosh, this is a good starter. It'd be a shame to have it disappear. And so he started our little society to keep making it available. But it's grown a lot since then. <laughs> How many of you are part of this society doing the work that you and your, your sister are doing? Volunteer work, we should uh, say. Yeah. Well, we have a, a us- our usual grower is in Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm when this wasn't a huge problem, you know, just this huge volume, I would uh, get all the envelopes ready for her and mail them off to her, and then she would grow and dry and grind and test the starter and then fill the envelopes and mail them. Well, now I'm pitching in on that job, too, because there's 8,000. My God. (laughs) You know, you talked about the the community and, and why this started all of those years ago, but what is so great about this starter? I mean, there's other starters out there. Oh, yeah, there are other starters. There are other good starters out there. What's great about sourdough is a really good sourdough starter is it's stable, it maintains its characteristics, and is strong enough to raise bread all on its own. And ours can do that. Ours is on the milder side of sour, although there are things you can do to make sourdough more or less sour. And um, one of the mythology out there is that, oh, it's just really easy to capture a sourdough in the wild. Well, I mean, that's how this one originally got caught. But that's a real hit-or-miss process. And most of the ones you catch from the wild are just not that strong. So, you know, that's why a lot of old sourdough recipes say, oh, we'll put in commercial yeast. Well, that's because they're assuming your sourdough starter isn't strong enough to do it on its own. But ours is. And that makes better bread or whatever else you're going to make. Do you even have time to make bread? Oh, no. (laughs) Well, that's sad, isn't it? (laughs) It is. I barely have time to feed myself. Maybe you got to take a break. People can wait. (laughs) Well, they just keep calling up. (laughs) Is this, you know, this really became part of the zeitgeist, not just your starter, but starters in general, people making sourdough, of course. During the pandemic, it really exploded. Did Did you see an uptick at that time, too? Oh, yes. We saw what was usually a large uptick, but we're talking three, four hundred a week for a few weeks, and then it died down in the summer. And this is, what, four or five times that? Do you think you'll have to say, you know, say no at a certain point and just start refusing orders or charging? I hope not. Um, But, I mean, usually when we've had press, it dies down after a few weeks. And then we go back to our, you know, 30 to 60 a week, which is no big deal to handle. But, you know, if this were just to keep going and going like this, we would have to change how we do things. Two people just cannot do this. So what's what's your message to a listener who's out there and maybe thinking of maybe writing an envelope as we speak? <laughs> well, one thing is go to our website and follow our directions. If you do anything but a business size envelope, all you're doing is delaying your, getting your starter. I'm getting a bunch of empty envelopes, and I'm sorry, you're just not going to get a starter. You have to pay for the postage. That's <laughs> the least you Canadian can do, yeah. listeners, mm-hmm. please don't send Canadian stamps or money. We can't use it. We have to have U.S. postage. And I can't use Canadian money. I'm too deep into the U.S. to <laughs> make that something I can do. I think you can do it closer to the borders. Are you getting a lot of requests from Canada? I'm getting extra, more than usual. We've always gotten a few from Canada. Um, it's probably been our number one non-U.S. requesters. Neighbors, you know, neighbors naturally. Yeah. 
You yeah. know what strikes me when I said, "Do you have any? Do you have any messages for? Do you have a message for any listeners out there?" And you didn't say, "Don't you know? Stop asking." That's quite generous. Well, you could have said, "Just don't." <laughs> you know, our, I mean, our whole purpose for being is to make a good sourdough starter available, and. You know, as far as the TikTok goes, you know, it's kind of nice having youngsters interested because, you know, most of the time it's pretty us pretty old people that are doing this sort of thing. Well, I really appreciate you taking time. When I said I, I know you're busy, I didn't realize just how busy. So thank you. And I hope you get a break. <laughs> Thanks. Mary Buckingham is trying to keep up with requests for sourdough starter. We reached her in Greeley, Colorado. of people will tell you that former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is a bad guy, that he's anti-democratic, that he presided over destruction of the rainforest, and that he plotted a coup, among many other things. But really, how bad can he be? How bad? Well, you may recall that he told Brazilians to stop whining about COVID deaths what if I told you that he has the same attitude toward upset humpbacks? What if I told you that Jair Bolsonaro was an unapologetic whale botherer? And what if I told you he bothered that whale while riding on a jet ski? I know, the jet ski alone should be an indictable offense, but even for a guy whose public persona is gleefully heartless bully, harassing a humpback whale on a jet ski is, well, actually, it's pretty much on brand, really. But it's interesting in the sense that apparently he never breaks character, even alone on a jet ski, which suggests, as you may already have suspected, that it's not a character. Yesterday, Mr. Bolsonaro met with police in Sao Paulo to discuss the whale badgering, which allegedly took place last June. In a video, you can see the clearly agitated whale trying to get away from this human who won't stop trying to film it on his jet ski. A human who appears to be Jair Bolsonaro and is violating the law by zipping up so close to the whale. And what with the coup allegations and various other potential crimes and misdemeanors, this is just a drop in the ocean, legally speaking. But given what we already know about who Jair Bolsonaro is, if you think he's not the kind of guy to torment a whale for fun, well, surely you jet ski. His supporters knew what the outcome would be before the hearing even began. Oleg Orlov was on trial in Russia for the second time over his criticism of the war in Ukraine. He's the co-chair of the organization Memorial, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2022, not long after it was banned and dissolved in Russia. And yesterday, the human rights activist was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Natalia Sekretareva is a human rights lawyer with Memorial and a colleague of Mr. Orlov. We reached her in Sao Paulo, Brazil. 
Natalia, when was the last time you spoke with Oleg Orlov? Um, I think it was uh, sometime last week we were talking about the strategy in his case. And and how was he feeling then about what might might happen? Um, it's a bit of a different, uh, difficult question because he, no one is happy about what is happening, but everyone understood what is going to happen, that there is no reason, the only reason why this case was overturned uh, the first time it was to impose a real prison sentence. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we were all kind of anxious, but also it was very clear that it was a personal choice and this is how it's going to happen. Yeah, this was this was a retrial. He was found guilty before, yeah. but was able to walk free and had to pay, you know, a relatively small fine. Why do you think this retrial and this kind of sentence happened now? Um, it's a good question. It was a bit bizarre because the prosecution itself didn't ask for a prison sentence. They, di- they did ask for a bit bigger fine, which was still relatively minor. And then four or five days after the first verdict, they them- the se- themselves appealed saying that the verdict is not just, that the sanctions should have been harsher and stuff like this. Um, Our only guess is that we will never know for sure, but it looks like the authorities didn't really like that they were not able to kind of submit Allegal Erlov to to the censorship, that his voice remained very, very loud and very clear. And then there is a sense of him being punished for this. He was accused of, quote, repeatedly discrediting the Russian military, what exactly did he say and write? So this uh, this crime is how it is applied is basically a wartime censorship. Any kind of criticism, any kind of anti-war statement is qualified as a um, as a discreditation of Russian armed forces. In case of Oleg Arlov, his repeated uh, discreditation was in the form of uh, an op-ed, an article that he wrote for a French newspaper, and then he posted a Russian version on his uh, Facebook page. And this article was less, it was criticizing the war, but it was more talking about the negative effects of of the war on the human rights situation inside of the country. And one of the things that really triggered the authorities was that he compared Russia to a modern fascist state. This is also coming, as you well know, after the death of Alexei Navalny, which we've covered on this program as well. Mr. Orlov knew this this might happen he he chose to stay in russia uh, knowing that this this could could happen why did he decide to do that um that's a really good question because uh the majority of people surrounding him did not want him to stay because we were saying that it doesn't make sense that he can do way more mm-hmm. outside of prison but it was his personal choice and he felt like First of all, he felt like uh, the weight of his actions and, and his words, has they have way more weight if he stays in Russia. And second, it was a matter of principle to him that he did not do anything wrong. 
he does not think of himself as guilty he doesn't have anything to apologize for and then he wanted to stay in russia and to face whatever circumstances it implies but yes it was especially hard for us people surrounding him mm-hmm. after what happened after the death of alexei navalny because it's it felt for everyone as a sign of one more one more for frontier of oppressions kind of breaking and one more door opening to really bad things that can happen, including including Oligarlov. Is there a way to turn things around in Russia? Um, we will only know if we try. So our goal here right now is to kind of keep things going, keep our movement, our organization alive and keep us alive as a community. And then what we know is that the government is afraid of any kind of self-organization, any kind of grassroots movement, any kind of civil society organizations kind of remaining and being strong. So we're focusing on that and then whether and it will happen, but when the democratic changes will happen, unfortunately, we don't know. And unfortunately, it's a lot out of our control. Oleg Orlov's decision to stay, um, it sounds like, is, is to send a clear message about where he stands. But he also, in in what he was doing in court, what he was reading, what he was saying, mm-hmm. referring to, to Kafka, uh, and reading Kafka as well in court, what was he trying to communicate there? He was trying to communicate that he was really clear on the first day of the second uh, of the retrial. He made a speech to the court and he made it really clear that he considers it a political trial, that there is no independence of the judiciary in Russia, that everyone knows how this trial is going to unravel. And then... It was also a way of him doing his human rights job, his human rights activism, by showing the absurdity of this trial and showing how unjust and how um, rotten the Russian law enforcement and judicial systems are. And I think, in my personal opinion, it was quite effective. Natalia, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for covering this case. Natalia Sekretareva is a human rights lawyer with the organization Memorial. We reached her in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's known as the Crooked House, and the origins of that name are not a mystery. For years, the pub in England's black country sat on a distinct sideways slant, with one side sunk about a meter into the earth due to an old coal mine beneath its foundation. 
Now the crooked house is the collapsed house, but it was not gravity that brought it down. Last year it was gutted in a suspicious fire, and days later it was bulldozed by its new owners. They had not sought permission to demolish the pub, which was built in 1765. And yesterday the town council ordered them to rebuild the crooked house in all its crooked glory. James Raybone is a member of the grassroots movement that pushed for this week's announcement. We reached him in Dudley, England, just down the road from the Crooked House. James, the Crooked House will rise again. Can you believe it? Um, <laughs> yes, yes and no. Um, yeah, because I always thought we would be able to achieve this. But at the same time, no, because I can't believe it's happened within just six months. But we're also very much aware of, right, that sort of, you know, the first victory has been has been won but now the, the battle really starts to make sure that what is on that order actually gets done and uh, the crooked house comes back how long do they have to to carry out those orders so they've got three years so the order gives them three years to get it all done and rebuilt if they don't do it within the three years then it goes to court any early indications of whether they're going to play ball <sighs> who knows um i mean i am hopeful that they will I don't know them. I've never mm-hmm. met them. Obviously, they've they've worked with South Staffordshire Council um, and South Staffordshire Council now have got all the papers and will will keep the pressure on. I presume absolutely nothing as yet as to what their reaction is. Throughout the entirety of the campaign, really, we've heard nothing um, from the new owners mm-hmm. apart from a very brief statement when they brought the place that they were going to carry on as a wedding venue or a going concert. Then, obviously, all the events uh, unfolded. Mm-hmm. Before all of those events unfolded, what was it like to to drink a pint in a pub that that was a meter taller on one side than the other? So it's a very very odd sensation. Um, I'll briefly <laughs> delve into the history. So because because the way the cellars were constructed, the pub, yeah, as you say, fell by a meter on one end, um, but stayed intact, which is amazing. It was very heavily braced, um, but it did stay intact. And you sort of walked in. And it wasn't so much of the drinking. In a way, the drinking kind of made it a bit better. (laughs) It was more when you first walked in and nothing was straight. So where you're expecting um, a lovely entranceway or a door that opens at a very obscure angle, um, it was very disorientating. But once you kind of sat down and maybe three or four pints in, it then got a little better, shall we say. Um, But it was certainly (laughs) interesting because you'd look out the window and you weren't quite sure, is the window wrong? Is the ground wrong? Have I had eight points? That was kind of what it would feel like. I bet. I bet. So it became a tourist attraction as well. But clearly it meant a lot to you and other people in the community for you to take on this fight and work on this for months and months. What does it mean to people there? Well, it's very, very important to people of the black country. It's been there for, you know, nearly 300 years, over 300 years. And so it's... It's always been in the black country. It was a place you went with your grandparents. It was a place that when you first passed your driving test, you just took the car and drove there. It was a place that was always sort of there. You went there for a nice summer afternoon point. It was in a beautiful sort of setting and surrounding. And to the people of the black country, it's it's a little symbol of the black country and a bit of their identity. So the new owners would have would have certainly known that history, but but there was a fire. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm weighing these two things. On one hand, even, you know, just uh, as an outsider, I know there are very strict rules in the UK about making any changes, even if a building is not a heritage building. On the other hand, there was yeah. there was a fire and maybe it was unsafe and had to be torn down. So how, how did people react when it was torn down? 
yes, we'd had this fire, and you think, well, okay, it had been left, um, although it had been secured. Maybe it was just vandals messing around. But then when the demolition happened so quickly, people were in absolute disbelief. As I understood it, the council had asked them to remove just three unsafe areas. Um, We don't know what they were, but they'd asked them just to take down three little bits. And all of a sudden, this video comes out of this... um, excavator just sort of smashing smashing it down and tearing it to pieces not even done in a controlled and safe way and everyone was like no that can't be true and then all of a sudden the pictures filtered through and you were left with a pile of rubble people were moved to tears yeah they were they were people were literally sobbing and people just gathered a few days after the building had been torn down i went down myself took some photos looked at the rubble pile and sort of stood there for five minutes just in disbelief actually because i am passionate about history conservation and preservation of history you know it was an absolutely unique building and suddenly there it is just a pile of bricks seeing it gone was just oh my god how oh my god how how and why have you learned anything over these last six months about why i mean any statements from them did they think it was unsafe did they i mean clearly they knew what it meant to the community we have had absolute radio silence. No statement has come from the new owners at all. And that's okay. That's their prerogative if they want to be like that. But we were determined from that day when we saw rubble. None of us six months ago that formed the core group of the campaign knew each other. We were determined that something had to be done to make sure that the Crooked House is rebuilt and a similar fate couldn't happen to other important heritage pubs and heritage buildings throughout the UK. So this brought you together as a community in a different way? Yeah, I think what it showed is that if something really bad happens, the community will galvanise and they will join together, they will meet. And because of that, and then subsequent support from MPs and the mayor of the West Midlands, you've really got quite a a good indication that a people power movement, which is what it is, essentially a grassroots movement, when they galvanise, can still make a positive change. And I think that's really important. It's brought a lot of people together. What are architects telling you, though? Is it even possible to rebuild it in exactly the way it It, was? (laughs) It is. It absolutely is. Very early on, I believe there was a a discussion somewhere between certain architects who were like, yep, we can totally rebuild it at like 15 degree or however many angles it is off. There is a little bit of a, a caveat, though. It's got to be rebuilt to modern building standards. But as I understand it, we can reuse the bricks Um, but on the inside or the bits you won't see, it'll be, in effect, a modern building. So it's almost like Crooked House version 3. The first one was upright, the second one was wonky, and the new one's probably a lot warmer when we get it done. James, I thank you for your time. Thank you. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Take care, everyone. You too. James Raybone is a member of the Save the Crooked House campaign. We reached him in Dudley, England. Dallas Sunius is not phased by competition. He's a former star player on Canada's national men's volleyball team and has a bronze medal from the 2015 Pan Am Games. And now he's bringing that same competitive spirit to his defense of Bad Cree by Jessica Johns on Canada Reads. The literary debates get underway next week on CBC, but as far as Mr. Sunius is concerned, the competition has already started. So he was reluctant to reveal anything about his strategy in a recent interview with the CBC's Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud. But he did say, quote, Jessica Johns describes herself as a Nehio anti. 
I'm Nehio. The story is a Nehio story, unquote. That has given him a particular understanding of the book and its characters. Among those characters is Mackenzie, a young woman who is haunted by her sister's death and whose nightmares follow her into the real world. Here's Jessica Johns. Before I look down, I know it's there. The crow's head I was clutching in my dream is now in bed with me. I woke up with the weight of it in my hands, held against my chest under the covers. I can still feel its beak and feathers on my palms. The smell of pine and the tang of blood sting my nose. My pillow feels for a second like the cold, frozen ground under my cheek. I yank off my blanket, heavy, like I'm pulling it back from the past, and look down to my hands, now empty. A feeling of static pulses inside them like when a dead limb fills with blood again. They are clean and dry and trembling. Not again. I step gingerly out of bed as though the world in front of me might break and turn on the light, wait for my eyes to adjust. It illuminates my blanket on the floor, the gray sheet kicked into a clump. Every breath I take is labored. And when I blink... My dream flashes onto the back of my eyelids, running through the woods, the snow glistening in the clearing, the crows covering Sabrina's body. Heart thumping in my chest, I kneel next to the bed, how I imagine I might if I ever were to pray. Come on, I plead into the covers. Where are you? I feel across the bedsheet for anything, blood, feathers, twig small bones. My fingers shake and search by touch in between pillows into every crease and wrinkle of the fitted sheet. I turn on the flashlight on my phone and use it to look into shadows, but I find nothing. My shirt, when I bring it up to my nose, smells like the outside in winter, like pine trees and sharp cold. Come on. I kick the blanket to the side and put my cheek to the floor scanning underneath the bed and bedside table. Dust and crumbs sit forgotten in dry corners. An old plate, mold forming along the ridges, lies next to holy socks. I close my eyes. My awake mind is trying to fog the dream over, shake it away, but I hold on to it. I know it was there, in my hand. As real as the floor still against my cheek, I was holding a crow's head when I woke up. Jessica Johns reading from her Canada Reads-nominated novel, Bad Cree. The book will be championed by Canadian volleyball star Dallas Sunias in next week's debates. They get underway on Monday. I'm aware that most of our listeners are probably mammals, but I'm just going to say this anyway. Mammals are basic. Uh, we're often furry, and that's that's fun, but mammals are like heat-and-serve sausage rolls, while sea creatures are like thrilling, unexpected hors d'oeuvres that are exotic, translucent or phosphorescent or something. And we don't even know about half the animals that dwell in the deepest reaches of the ocean. And when we do spot them, they are more often than not gobsmackingly strange. Now, researchers on an expedition in an unexplored area of the Pacific say they have found dozens of new marine species, and they're determined to discover more. Erin Easton is among them. We reached her aboard the Schmidt Ocean Institute's research vessel, the Falkor 2. Erin, what is the view from the ship like right now? 
Let's see, right now we do not see any land from the ship, and we have a partly cloudy day, and the seas are fairly calm today. Okay. This is the second leg of the expedition, but as our listeners just heard in the introduction to our conversation, on the first leg, your team identified about 100 creatures that you believe to be entirely new species. Uh, I've looked at some of the video, and they're certainly stunning to look at, but, but what are some of your favorites? I think the cactus urchins that we observed are among my favorite. They were very beautiful to see, especially how they kind of nestled up against some of the corals and they were in these large groups. So they were really impressive to see. Um, I am excited to look at the genetics of the corals to see if we can add to that number of 100 potential new species. So could the number um, could go up? many of them, we really have to look at them. Yeah, the number could go up. There's a lot that you can't... Um, we can't say our potential new species until we start looking at them back in the lab. So the number could go up. You know, we often speak to scientists and we know how how extraordinary and rare it can be to discover just one new species. So what is it like for you as a scientist to encounter so many potentially entirely new creatures in, in such a newly discovered, we should say, in such a short period of time? It is beyond my wildest dreams of what we could have expected. We definitely expected to find numerous new species, but nowhere near as many as we observed. It felt like every time we went around um, a rock outcrop or zoomed in closer, we're like, oh, wow, we've never seen that reported for the region. Oh, that could be a new species. And um, just listening to the excitement in the room, uh, there was a lot of times where they would just be, Aaron, Aaron. Aaron, look there. And I'm like, what do you want me to look at now? <laughs> so um, it was pretty much uh, an adventure and really interesting. We often also report on what is being lost and, and necessary as well as desperate conservation efforts. But but what is it like to have, you know, it, it's great for us to hear these positive stories of new discoveries, thriving creatures, it, it, it sounds like. In that context, what is it like for you as a scientist to have that kind of positive news to report? Yeah, it was really impressive. I think um, observing these ancient coral gardens where we saw corals that were a meter plus wide and tall and are probably thousands of years old, it was just really um, rewarding and positive feeling to know that there are these corals that have lived this long and made it through all these centuries and millennia still thriving and it's impressive and amazing and just baffles your mind. <laughs> Tell me about the squat lobster. We have a scientist on board who works with squat lobsters. The squat lobsters, even though they're called lobsters, are actually more closely related to hermit crabs, but they're known to be found nestled in corals, living in association with them or in crevices and rocks. And so they were doing respiration experiments. So we collected a lot of squat lobsters and a number of them are potentially new to science. A lot of them are new reports for the area as well. So that particular scientist whose expertise is in squat lobsters was losing their mind, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so the squat lobster expert on board is Maria de los Angeles Gallardo. And yeah, you can hear if you listen to the video, there's a lot of times like, oh, oh. 
ooh, <laughs> just <laughs> pointing. And I knew as soon as I heard her say that, that I needed to tune in my eyes to start looking for where she was seeing squat lobsters. Yeah. So how big are they? They're usually just little pieces of pink mm. and red. Um, they can be very, quite small. Um, so they can be maybe the size of your pinky fingernail. And they can be quite large and be the size of your hand. Besides being so beautiful and certainly awe-inspiring and exciting, uh, as you said, finding and recognizing, documenting these species, why do you feel that that's so important right now as well? Yeah, I think our world is changing so much right now, and we still have so much yet to explore in the oceans. And we still are discovering new species. And so now's a really good time to start making decisions about protecting the biodiversity and the habitats and ecosystems in the ocean. So making these discoveries now in an area of the ocean that has a little bit less of an impact from human activities in terms of fishing, it's just a great time to do it because we can protect them now before the damages are so bad. And so it's exciting to know that we are able to observe all these potential new species and all these really amazing ecosystems, and we can provide that information to decision makers so that they can say, wow, this is a really important area of the ocean, and we really need to protect it. The first leg was was so fruitful, <laughs> so successful. There's a lot to live up to for the second leg, no? <laughs> so I, I think... We're hopeful we will see a lot of new potential new species on the second leg as well. We are crossing um, the South Pacific into an area where there's lower nutrients. And so we actually expect light to penetrate deeper. So even more so than potential new species, I'm hoping to observe some of the deepest depths of light penetration and light dependent organisms. So that's one of the my hopes is that we are going to discover really deep, lit areas of the ocean that are just bright and colorful. Erin, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Erin Easton is an ocean researcher. We reached her aboard the Schmidt Ocean Institute's research vessel, the Falcor 2, somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Earlier in the show, we told you about the overwhelming demand for a piece of 1847 Oregon Trail sourdough starter, which is, uh, you know, it's pretty old for bread. But guess what? We can go older. Picture the, the calendar pages tearing away as we go back centuries, and then millennia, all the way back to 2500 B.C. In 2019, we spoke with Seamus Blackley. He's a physicist and an amateur baker who's fascinated by ancient Egypt. So he set out to recreate Egyptian bread using dormant yeast from an ancient pot. From our archives, here's Mr. Blackley speaking to guest host Pia Chattopadhyay. Seamus, first of all, what does this ancient Egyptian bread taste like? I've baked a lot of sourdough, and I'm not bad at it. And I've made a lot of cultures and it was different. It tasted and smelled different. It was new. It was very exciting. Different good or different bad? 
different great. <laughs> um, yeah, so and I, I hate to, to, to be so nerdy, but bear with me. I think it's really interesting. And, and by the way, I'm surprised. I mean, I, my hobby is like collecting spores, and, and I'm incredibly surprised that other people are tolerant of this, a little excited about it. But this starter culture, the, the leavening that was used in the ancient world, existed before modern wheat, before modern yeast, before any of the things that we really consider to be bread. This is really old stuff. And so these yeast spores, if indeed that's what we got, have never been exposed to wheat. They, they ate einkorn and barley. That's what the Egyptians used. And so I fed them this old grain, and it immediately woke up. And it started to bubble and go crazy like sourdough starters do. And it smelled yeasty but different. It, was, it had overtones of brown sugar. It was really interesting and cool. So you brought up the smell because one of the best things about baking bread is when you open that oven door and the beautiful aromas just overwhelm you. Did this smell that delicious? It did. And just to me emotionally, it was such a comforting and amazing and rich and sweet smell. And I, I try to describe it. I say, oh, it, it, you know, it had overtones of caramel and brown sugar, which it did. But really, it was, it was emotional. I mean, I was surprised that it worked at all. It is clear to me that you are very enthusiastic about baking bread. This is a passion. And I'm wondering about the ancient Egyptians. Were they as enthusiastic? Were they pretty well known for their bread baking abilities? Oh, yes. And they were very accomplished bakers. And we have loaves of bread that we found in tombs and buried. We have the bread molds. We have, of course, lots of writing about bread. They loved bread. I understand you recruited some expert help in order to, to do all this. So who did you recruit? Yeah, I'm a I'm a theoretical high energy physicist, which means that I have trouble getting a job waiting tables, right? And when I first went about doing this, I had got a sample of quote unquote ancient Egyptian yeast from a beer brewing friend of mine. And it, you know, probably thinking back to it, it may at one point have been scraped from a pot, but there's no provenance and it hadn't been fed sterile grain, so who knows what it was. And I baked with it and it really took off on Twitter. This is a few months ago. And I realized that I was being disingenuous because I didn't know if it really was even <laughs> Egyptian yeast and what the hell was I doing. So I had a lot of people asking questions on Twitter and being pretty critical, which they should have been. And two of the people who were most critical were Dr. Serena Love, who's an Egyptologist, uh, who has a lot of knowledge about Egyptian pottery and baking, uh, and a guy called Richard Bowman, who's a microbiologist uh, at the University of Iowa. Uh, I thought, you know, I should really do this right. And so I asked them if they would help figure out a way to do this for real. And and that's why we're here. And where did you and your teammates, so to speak, uh, where did you find an Egyptian pot that still had yeast in it? Yeast is incredible as an animal. It can survive in space and in vacuum. You can freeze it. You can do all sorts of abuse to it, and it will still bounce back. It can hibernate for thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. We don't really know, but certainly thousands. And because of that property, and the fact that the ancient Egyptians and a lot of other ancient peoples used really porous natural clay pottery to do their baking and their brewing. We thought it was likely that vessels that have been used for doing that would have some of these yeast and bacteria, the symbiotic sort of mixture of starter culture, kind of pounded into the pores. And it would go to sleep in these pores, safe. If we can get inside those pores and get to those, those microbes, we could get this goodness out. And so... You need a microbiologist like Richard who understands 
how to safely and carefully extract and wake up these microbes and then analyze them. And so I sort of unintentionally spoke to the right people. How do you wake up yeast that's been dormant for thousands of years? Well, it's actually pretty easy. Um, you know, it does all the work. Um, you just kind of get it wet and feed it. What we, what we developed was a method, sort of a microbiological fracking technique um, in which we uh, inject uh, a fluid with a lot of nutrients and amino acids and yummy stuff for the kinds of microbes we're looking for um, carefully into the ceramic matrix, like the, the pore structure inside of these pots. Uh, and we let it sit for a little while. Everybody starts to wake up, stretch, you know, <laughs> sleepy eyes. And then we immediately suck it out really hard so that we get all the microbes coming back in the fluid. And then the microbes are happy because they're, you know, swimming in a sea of food. Uh, and then I FedEx those samples to Richard, and he does a lot of work separating them and understanding what's in there. Is there any of the original loaf left? Uh, yeah, it's been partially curated uh, gastronomically by my wife <laughs> over the past <laughs> couple of days. Uh, because, it, look, it's really good. You, you don't have to be a bread nerd to smell that's different. And that's one of the exciting things. But the half of the loaf is sitting uh, because I'm going to be meeting uh, Dr. Love for the first time. She's in from Australia. And I'm going to see what she has to say about it. There are lots of people listening who are, you know, sourdough enthusiasts, amateur bakers. And all they want to know is, can I have some of your sourdough starter? Is there any to share around? Not yet, but the full intention of this, in fact, the point of the exercise is to share it as far and wide as possible. As soon as we're done with the hard work, where we can look everyone in the eye and say, yes, we promise this is the ancient stuff, we're going to share it. In fact, I already do share a bunch of yeast uh, on another Twitter page that I have called Ancient Yeast Club, which, again, I am stunned that something called Ancient Yeast Club has thousands of followers, but it does, and we're going to share it far and wide. Seamus, thank you very much. Appreciate your time today. It's great talking to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. From 2019, that was guest host Pia Chattopadhyay talking to ancient Egyptian bread baker. I mean, he's not an ancient Egyptian who bakes bread. He's a baker of ancient Egyptian bread, Seamus Blackley. Take a moment to contemplate the pink, wet, wily occupant of most people's mouths, including your own, and it will hit you like a tongue of bricks. Tongues are kind of gross. Uh, they're amazing, of course, and helpful with lollipops, but there's a reason we keep them locked away in our mouthly prisons. The reason is that when they emerge, they look like damp, naked mole rats trying to escape through a face. But that kind of knee-jerk tongue judgment is something Jenny Duvander is having none of. The Oregon woman has just earned a Guinness World Record for largest female tongue circumference at 5.21 inches, or just over 13 centimeters, when flexed. And the photos are, wow. Ms. Duvander admits tongues aren't the most lovely-looking of organs, but insists they are, quote, pretty cool. She told Guinness, they're pure muscle and so agile. When you think about it, the tongue is the only muscle that's free to move around like that. It moves around all day and never gets tired. 
She also notes that as a flute player, the strong tongue comes in handy. So, you know, congrats to Ms. Duvander for having a tongue that really sticks out. And allow me to nip all that tongue criticism in the buds. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. And you can, of course, also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.